Hey there. Thanks for joining us at Risen King Church for our weekly sermon podcast. We pray you meet God and know that you are loved today. Be sure to visit us at risenking.life to take all of your next steps and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Enjoy the message. We're coming down to the last two weeks of our Reset series. I always have trouble when we're coming to the end because uh, each of these series means so much to me, but this one has been just so incredible to be a part of, to do the research, the writing, and then to deliver these messages to you. Today I want to focus on Jesus' own words in John chapter 10 and then in Matthew 7. So I love it when you, the church, read the word with me. So let's read out loud. I am the gate. Whoever enters by me will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road is easy that leads to destruction. And there are many who take it, for the gate is narrow and the road is hard that leads to life, and there are few who find it. This passage where Jesus says, I have come that you may have life and that you may have it abundantly is the default setting of everything that God is doing in your life. Everything that's happening in your life is God positioning you to experience life to its fullest. And what I'd like you to think about today is really to think of this in three ways. Jesus is committed to you flourishing. That your flourishing is what he has done in his death, his resurrection, his perfectly obedient life, and now his ascension. And even as he's seated at the right hand of the Father, he's interceding that you might flourish. And he's done everything for you to do that. In, in John 15, it says that if you abide in him, you will bear much fruit, you'll bear fruit that remains, and you'll bear fruit that multiplies. He's committed to your flourishing. But in order for that to be true, then you have to understand what true freedom is. Because you cannot get lost in freedom that this world believes is freedom. You have to have the freedom that comes in Christ where he said, where Paul says it was for freedom that Christ set you free. And then you have to begin to understand what it means to actually have genuine lasting fulfillment. To not be distracted by things that will not fulfill you but will take your energy and your efforts from you. But to actually experience these three things, flourishing, freedom, and fulfillment. And one of the things, I, as I was thinking about this message, and I was thinking about this teaching today, I began to realize that when I came here 18 years ago, almost 18 years ago now, the thing that I was committed to was these three things. Because this is what Jesus is committed to. This is what the church is actually supposed to be about. It's, about, it's supposed to be a place and a, an organization that helps you flourish, that that shows you how to get free and is a part of what, me, what it means to be fulfilled. And I've thought about that in the way that I've served and ministered and taught and preached. It's everything that I've ever wanted for any of you is that you would flourish. And that, that there is resistance to you flourishing because there's resistance in many ways to what leads to true freedom. Which means if you're not flourishing and you're not free, then you're not fulfilled. And there's probably nothing on earth worse than an unfulfilled Christian. Because it, Jesus said it was for life that he came for you. And life abundantly. I can't tell you how many miserable churches I've been to. Miserable Christians. Miserable prayer meetings. Now, some of it was because the people weren't even believers. They were not yielded in any way to the Spirit. They weren't yielded to God's Word. But some of it was they thought that was what Christianity was. So why we've been doing this reset is that 
We want you to be aligned with life. We want you to be aligned with freedom and fulfillment. Can you say those three words with me just to see if you're tracking with me? Flourishing, Flourishing. freedom, Freedom. fulfillment. Fulfillment. I'm being very Presbyterian today with three Fs there. (laughs) Alliteration. So what does it mean to flourish? What does it mean to have life abundant? So one of the people that I think is really on target in his critique of our culture and this present moment is a man by the name of Mark Sayers. If you ever get to listen to his podcast, it's really good. His books are also very good. But he explains it this way. He says, human flourishing could be illustrated on a sort of axis with the components being freedom, meaning, and relationship or community. Sayers uses the illustration of reservoirs. So a healthy person, or in our case, a healthy Christian, has a heart oriented towards life around filling the reservoirs of freedom, meaning, and relationships. So let's look at what that looks like. So if you are flourishing, then your life has healthy balances of these three things. Or you say it another way, if you look at your life as reservoirs of fullness, then you have a fullness of freedom, you have a fullness of meaning, and you have a fullness of relationships. If any of these are a reservoir in your life that is empty, then you will be trying to siphon off of other people's reservoir in order to somehow make you feel full or fulfilled. And so what happens is when one of these are out of balance, then a human doesn't flourish. So you need meaning, you need freedom, you need relationships. So what do those three things look like? So Sayer's uh, definition is this. Freedom is the ability to act freely on our convictions, to not be entirely dictated by external forces, to have a healthy inner life of choice, a healthy sense of control and self-determination. Research shows that the greatest fear that you have is the fear of being powerless, of having no self-determination, of not having the ability to do what you choose to do or not doing what you want to do, but being trapped or powerless or disconnected. So your deepest fear and, and many of us have experienced, whether if you've ever been subject to abuse, if you've ever been subject to a domineering or dominating person, you have a sense of what it feels like to be powerless, and that does something to the human soul. It fractures and fragments the soul. It destroys the trust mechanism when people who have authority over you do not care for you and do not guard you and do not protect you and do not give you some measure of self-determination. It's pretty bad when a parent, mother or father, is domineering and dominating because what they're doing is they're saying, love is me controlling you. But the heart can't handle that. The heart can't handle not having some healthy ability to determine my own choices. So freedom is essential to flourishing. Now, with that, is I can't just be free. I also have to have a full reservoir. My bucket needs to be filled with meaning. Now, this you might, you might miss in some ways, and I know I'm putting on my professor hat, but I, want, I really would ask you today to study this with me, not just to listen and kind of comprehend it, I want you to understand something. You can comprehend what it is to flourish and never flourish. When it comes to true healing of your soul, when it comes to true soul care, you have to be a practitioner, not just a theorist. Lots of people have great theories, but their lives suck. It's in the Greek somewhere. You are called, and you're here today by the invitation of Jesus to have life abundantly. 
That's his word to you. There is another, he says, who wants to steal, who wants to kill, and wants to destroy. There's another gate that's wide open. And the way is super easy, but it leads to destruction. So the only way that you truly will flourish is if you go through the narrow gate and you choose the harder way, which means that you can understand emotional healing. You can understand soul care and not at all be healed. As a matter of fact, I've seen people inoculated because they understood too quickly and didn't apply at all. It isn't just knowing the truth, it's applying the truth that sets you free. So one of the issues in every one of our lives is we have far deeper spiritual passion than we realize. You were made with a reservoir that can only be filled with passion for the Lord. Now you may be filling it up with all kinds of other things. You might be a, a passionate lover of the Jets or the Giants or the, any of these other people who break your heart on a regular basis. <laughs> but that, even that zeal of fandom is an indicator of the ability you have for spiritual passion. You were made, whether you know it or not, you were made for a story bigger than yourself. You were made to give yourself to something bigger than self. And so you are never fully flourishing if you haven't really found what your meaning, your purpose, your mission is. Being on assignment with Jesus is the alignment that brings the resources of the life of Christ into your life. Here is a theological reality. The Holy Spirit is absolutely unconditionally committed to fulfill the mission of Jesus. You want his power? Then you be absolutely unconditionally committed to fulfill the mission of Jesus and you will never lack the Holy Spirit's presence and power. But if you have tried to find meaning and purpose in something less than what you were made for, you will never flourish. And every one of you is called to a big narrative. I love this word. We don't use it very much, but you actually are not just a person who's down to earth and, and, and right here and now. You're actually a person who is called to a transcendent story, a story bigger than and other than just yourself. And as, as small or insignificant as you might think you, you are, there is within you a deep identity from which you can draw purpose at all times. <laughs> you might be the worst Christian in this room, and I'm looking to see who that is. <laughs> or you might be the best. But the only way that the narrow road is traveled is by drawing on an identity that you did not achieve, but an identity which you received. The identity in Christ is never a behavioral identity. It is always an intimacy and relational identity. And then the other thing is this. The other reservoir is you cannot flourish unless you're in relationship. And you cannot flourish if you're not in community. And here is the beautiful thing about this, and I think Sayers is so right, is that in many ways... You don't really know yourself till you relate to other people. Uh, in, in the scriptures, this is so true. Jacob did not know what a deceiver he was till he met his uncle Laban. And then Jacob found out he was an amateur compared to his uncle. But what was God doing? God was holding up a spiritual mirror and saying, Jacob, do you see who you are and do you want to stay this way? How many times in your life has God put a jerk in your life? How many times in your life has God put irritants and annoying people in your life who if they would just listen to you, all the world would be better? And yet God was saying, I'm putting a mirror up to your spirit so you can see how much like Jacob you are. 
You see, people say to me all the time, I'm going to get away from people, I'm going to get away from relationships, and I'm going to heal myself, and then I'm going to come back. And I'm like, that's not going to work. One is you will never know how broken you are till you're next to other people. But you'll also never know how healed you are till you're next to other people. And here's the thing that I've learned is that if you're not in the business of serving other people, you never get healed. Because as you serve, you see where your healing needs to progress. You see where your impatience is. You see where your pride is. You see where the issues are in your life. And God has placed us in community. But here's the beautiful thing about this. We don't belong to each other because we like each other. We don't belong to each other because we are like one another. We belong to each other because we belong to Christ. And because you belong to Christ, you belong to me. And because I belong to Christ, you belong to me. And I belong to you. And we cannot, even when we break fellowship with one another, even when we end relationships, we still belong to each other. We still are eternally connected to one another. It's one of the most interesting things is that God has made it to well. You do not flourish without other people, but in other people's brokenness, you see your own brokenness. And either you become an honest, messy, disillusioned group that can actually be helped, or you continue at a distance from one another, never having intimacy and never truly flourishing in the reality of who we are in Jesus instead of the reality of who we are in each other. It's a messy thing to really be the church. That's why we have 10,000 denominations. One of my favorites, this is off the subject a little, but one of my favorites is one, one church is called Church of God and then one's called Church of God of Prophecy. You understand what they fought over? You don't have my view of prophecy, so I'm going to start my own group. That's not how we flourish. How we flourish is that we deal with our disillusionment with one another. We recognize that often it's because I'm offended. It's something about my brokenness, not something about your brokenness. But rather, what we'd rather do is not really know what it is to be in community and instead say, I can leave this group because I don't like this person. And guess what? The person you don't like will be in the eternity with you for all eternity. And you don't get a separate room. There won't be the Baptist wing and the Presbyterian wing and the Pentecostal wing. We'll all be together. And the ama- are you tracking with me a little bit here? The amazing thing, when I talk about this flourishing, and I, I, I know for some of you this is a new thought, but the truth is God is working on all three of these areas in your life all at once. And nothing that's going on in your life is random. Everything has intention. It has the Spirit's intention to bring you into a place of flourishing. Because Jesus never backed off from that statement. He said, well, I'm going to have life for some of you. No, he says, I came that you all, and he was from, you know, southern part of Israel, so it was (laughs) y'all. I came that y'all might have life and have it abundantly. Can I... Can I just get this across to you? The one resisting you flourishing is you. No one else is to blame. Everybody in your life has a purpose. The community that you're in is not keeping you from flourishing. The one who's stopping you is you. Here's what Jesus said in another place. Out of your bellies will flow rivers of living water. He didn't say if. He didn't say maybe. He said out of your bellies will flow rivers of living water. The one damming up the flow is you. That is why it's so important that we come to this change 
and we begin to study, where do I need to change? It is not your behavior. It is your heart that is stopping you. This is, flourishing is about heart orientation. Where you're not free, it's time to get free. Where you are not finding meaning and purpose, you have the ability to find meaning and purpose. Where you are not really belonging in community, you have a community you belong to. In some ways, whether you like it or not. Because God has taken all of us orphans, spiritual orphans, and he's put us into a family. None of us are here because we are biologically connected. We are here because we've been adopted. And the adoption that we've experienced is that from the inside out, his spirit has made his home in our spirit. And you were prophetically birthed by the Holy Spirit when he said, Abba, Father within your spirit. You were, you were supernaturally exchanged from being an orphan to being a son or a daughter of the Most High God by the very prophetic utterance of the Holy Spirit in your spirit. In that moment that the Spirit cried out, Abba, Father, in you, your status was eternally changed and your identity was eternally changed. And when you are reborn by his spirit in your spirit, then Paul says, then your spirit speaks prophetically to the spirit. And your spirit says, Abba, Father, back. That's the new birth. That's the evidence of the new birth. That's the evidence of the being born in the spirit is that I begin to recognize my status has changed. That this deep identity is mine. That whoever I was, I'm not that person anymore. And you begin to realize out of that identity, out of that status, which was birthed supernaturally in you and responded by you, then there is the potential of flourishing. Freedom. It was for freedom that Christ set you free. Meaning. I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for your welfare, not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. He takes those of us who are not a people and he has made us his people, sealed with his own spirit. This is who you are as a believer. This axis that cannot, this axis of reservoirs that cannot be filled by anything in this world is yours by heritage. It's yours because of what Jesus has done for you. And if you're not flourishing, it's no one else's fault. Are you hearing me? So, we live, and one of the reasons that this axis is messed up is we live in a culture that overwhelmingly outweighs one of these elements over the other. So we live in a culture that is supercharged with freedom. We face a barrage of options in the most simple decisions of life, and this culture coerces us to believe this infinite freedom is some utopian vision of the good life. This is Mark Sayers I'm reading to you. Unlimited freedom purports to be the only way to be the best version of yourself. It's all fiction. Now, you, you may not know how much this has influenced you, but I even hear parents, Christian parents, say to their children, you can be anything you want to be. What a lie. I want to be six foot four. <laughs> I want to pitch for the Yankees. That ain't going to happen. You understand? You can't be whatever you want to be. You are giving kids, parents are giving kids an image of a utopia that will never happen. Unlimited freedom is impossible and it's destructive. My son, who's 40 now, I'm not, but he is. Uh, my, when he was a little boy, he, he, he is a very... He's very, very specific in what made him happy and what he chooses. So when he was a little boy, we used to go to the store, 
and the store had matchbook cars. He loved those matchbook cars. They cost 88 cents. And with 12 cents back in those days, he could get some gum or something like that. And for a dollar, I had a happy, happy son. He got older, and that no longer satisfied him. And there came the unlimited freedom of Toys R Us. So we would, he'd say, Dad, can we go to Toys R Us today? And, I, and, I, and I'd say, OK, let's go. And I said, but we only have $5. So it would take him over an hour, and he'd come out more depressed than he went in. <laughs> because there were too many choices. And he was always afraid he was picking the wrong one. And there was always this other thing. The thing he really wanted was $6. Not $5. Now, this, you might think this is a kid thing. No, no, it's not. Now, one of the things Lisa does every now and then is she watches a marathon of say yes to the dress. It is a train wreck of human, you know, reactions. I can't turn away. I'm like, turn that off, but I'm kind of watching it at the same time. But here's the thing. They come in with a $4,000 budget, but the dress that they can't live without is $4,500. I mean, it always happens. Or it's $10,000 or whatever it is. So now they'll never be happy with a $4,000 dress because they saw the $10,000 dress. Do you understand? Unlimited freedom is a myth. It's a lie because... You can't have unlimited freedom without unlimited resources. Oh, come on, that. But here's the problem. This failing vision that is, that is sold everywhere we look, in social media, movies, advertisements, wants us to believe the more freedom and the more autonomy you have, the happier you'll be. Here's a quote. Do what you want, when you want, and you will find the happiness you want. Let me just say one more thing, because I really think we have to drill down on this. There are so many people in such high places who are constantly saying that you have to follow your heart. I watched the documentary on Woody Allen and Mia Farrell. Do you know what he said when he, when he slept with his 16-year-old stepdaughter and then married his 18- or 20-year-old stepdaughter, he said, the heart wants what the heart wants. And that guy's still walking around free. You see, if the heart does what it wants, the heart destroys families. The heart destroys another person. Because my heart is not going to really care about what happens to your heart if you no longer are usable or serviceable to me. We cannot, friends, give ourselves over to an unlimited freedom society or culture and find ourselves flourishing. But what does the enemy do? It makes, it makes, he makes it seem like if you really follow Christ, you have no freedom. Or you have nothing that is truly your own, in a way. Now, here's the deal. Christ does offer a different vision of flourishing. We're actually called to sacrifice our self-determining type of behavior and freedom to embrace the life of meaning and relationship. One French novelist said it this way. When I was in love, I was not free. Thankfully, I was not in love all the time, so sometimes I was free. <laughs> you see, what he's saying is, I will not sacrifice my freedom for love. And when I gave myself to love, I lost my freedom. And Christ is saying that there is a sacrifice of self-determination that has to come, but it's not giving up everything, it's giving up to gain. It's losing your life to gain your life. It's denying self to actually find self. Let me give you an example from Jesus' teaching. 
In Luke chapter 15, Jesus provides the picture of this balance, of this sacrifice. Here we see the prodigal son. He disconnects himself from the community of his family. So he, he says, I don't need relationship. I don't need community. And he disavows the narrative or the meaning of his life by disavowing his inheritance. He takes on a life of complete autonomy, and, and the Bible calls it reckless living, which is unlimited freedom. By the end of his unlimited freedom experiment, he still has unlimited freedom, but he no longer has any meaning. He no longer has any inheritance. And though he is free, he no longer has any resources. He can't feed himself. He has to go to feeding pigs, and he starts longing for the food that he's giving to the pigs because he's so hungry. His unlimited freedom experiment ends with him saying, even the slaves in my father's house have more food than I have. So he's willing to go back and reset his life, but not on the terms it was before, but as a servant of his father. Now the father, a picture of our father and the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father does not allow him to come back as a slave. The father instead redeems his son back as a good father does. And he welcomes him back and he immediately reintroduces him and reinserts him into the family, into community, and he gives the meaning and identity to his son. And that is seen by the robe that he puts on him, the sandals that he puts on his feet. You see, slaves didn't wear sandals. Only sons wore sandals. And he puts the ring of his identity on his hand. You understand, when you truly want to flourish, it isn't when you go after unlimited freedom, because unlimited freedom, you will never have unlimited resources. And you will end up like the prodigal son with your freedom, but no meaning and no community, and therefore no flourishing. Are you hearing me? So from a Christian perspective then, this son sacrifices that unlimited freedom. He gives some of his control, his self-determination, so he can experience the fullness of community and identity because unlimited freedom is just a myth anyway. Now why do I say that? Well, because the truth is, if you see things from the Bible's perspective, which is God's revelation of our condition, human beings are not free to ever, ever have anything or everything they choose. The problem for us is that we're really slaves to our own sinful desires. You know, you can choose between white and brown bread, whole and skim milk, but we can't choose to live holy lives. The truth is, too, if you really are honest about your heart, you have so many contradictory desires. I mean, how many of us will say, boy, I really need to lose weight while we're eating our ice cream? <laughs> you know, we're not free to be the people we should be or even the people we want to be. We're controlled by whatever has captured our hearts. And, and this is so significant. This is why this whole reset thing has been about the heart. You know, You've got to understand this, that your motivation is everything. What you do is not nearly as important. It is important, obviously. Bad choices, bad consequences. But what you do in the spiritual realm is not nearly as important as why you do it. Why is your heart choosing this? Why are you doing this? Because in, in some ways... To live our lives apart from Christ is to stay in that place of pride, which is glory empty, but glory hungry. Now, this is such an important part of, of our story here, is that the freedom, the true freedom that Christ offers to every believer is a genuine freedom, but he does this not just by telling us our desires are wrong, but he does this by giving us a new desire. See, within you right now, there's two heartbeats. 
there's the heartbeat of God and his will for you. And then there's your heartbeat. And the question is, will you sync up your heartbeat to his? Not just will you try to resist evil, will you try to stop doing what you used to do, but will you nurture and fan into flame that desire that Jesus has put in you? Because in some ways, if, if what you're doing isn't what you want to do, then it's still not real spiritually. Like people will say to me, you know, I, 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 I'm not doing this, I'm not cheating on my wife, I'm not... You know, I'm not drinking, I'm not doing this or that or this other thing. But they really want to do it. So in a way, though they're restraining themselves, they're not free. See, if all you're doing is repressing the evil, then the evil at some point is going to spring up and it's going to explode in you in some way. It is only as you begin to nurture and say, I have a new desire. I have a new heart. I have new motivation. And, and, and Jesus has put his heart in you by putting his spirit in you. Listen what Romans 5, 8, 5 says. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. See, what you may or may not understand is you're not a sinner. You weren't a sinner because you sinned. You sinned because you were a sinner. That's a radically different thing. Now, I was telling in the first service, and I may have stated this too, too uh, black and white maybe, but I was not a very good youth pastor. That's why I quickly went to being senior pastor so I could rule over everything, you know? <laughs> I was not a very good youth pastor because I hated this one question that all the kids always asked. They were like, how far can we go on a date without going to hell? I'm like, you're already going to hell. I don't know what's the matter with you, you know? But the, see, the idea that so many people is, uh, you know, how far can I go and sin and not get punished and not get caught? Well, friends, that shows you're already in sin. That question alone already shows my motivation is off. I'm trying to figure out what I can get away with and still be blessed or what I can get away with and not lose the favor of God. That's a, that is a completely wrong question. Because what it's saying is, I have not gotten in touch with the desire to live utterly and completely surrendered to the Holy Spirit. I still want control to do what I want to do, no matter what the Bible says or what the Spirit says or anything else. And so that... The issue that's happened when you come to Christ is that supernaturally a new desire to serve God, to love God, has been put there. In the same way that the Holy Spirit loves Christ, in the same way that the Holy Spirit loves the Father, that love is now within you. And so what, what Augustine says that's so important here is because you are now a you know, the residence of the divine person of the Holy Spirit. You now have the ability to sin and you have the ability not to sin. Whereas before you came to Christ, you had no ability not to sin. You were always sinning. This is one of the hardest things for religious people and irreligious people because they want it defined by behavior. Is this behavior a sin? Is that behavior a sin? That's not really the issue, friend. The issue is why. Even the why, why, what can I get away with shows I still have a desire to do my own thing. I still have a desire to be independent. I'm still looking to people and things and circumstances and the world to satisfy what only God can satisfy. But you, you see, you, you have a whole new instinct do you understand when Christ came into your life, his nature now united with your nature. You have within you the Christ instinct. You are able not to sin, not just to you know, change your behavior. You're able to decide, I want to live for God. I want to give my heart to God. I, wanna, I want my motives to be single-minded and pure.
You have that ability now. You never had that ability before, but you have it now. See, the issue here is alignment. Aligning with what the Spirit is doing in your life. Always, he's always operating by the word of God, but he's operating in an intimacy with you. He, he comes in friendship. He comes with all of the attributes of the Father. He comes with all the love of the Son, and he's saying inside you right now, I've come to give you life. I've come to give you it abundantly. All of this is, and why we call it the reset is because it's about alignment. So here's my silly image about alignment. Some of you know I love coffee. Coffee is one of my favorite things in the world. I know God himself invented it, and it's amazing. <laughs> but for many years, quite a few years, I would take a group from the church down to Columbia. And we would get it, we would get it straight from the mountains where they picked it. Juan Valdez picked it for me. <laughs> Those of you who know who Juan Valdez is. And so every time I go down there, they bring me, you know, these wonderful sacks. And now, Colombian coffee is good, but Colombian coffee from Colombia is black gold. It's amazing. So I would always start running low on it before another trip. And I remember one Sunday morning, because we used to do four services, and I, I had to have my coffee. And so one Sunday morning, I was thinking, oh, this is my last cup of that Colombian coffee. And so I, I was in a hurry, and I, put, I had a carafe that fit on the machine, but I didn't put the carafe completely aligned. I put it aligned enough that coffee came pouring out, but not aligned enough that the carafe caught the coffee. So my last bat, my last pot of Colombian coffee was all over the counter. So I licked it up. <laughs> So here's the deal, friends. This is, what, this is what Jesus is saying. The coffee is pouring out. Is your carafe in position to receive it? It's pouring out. Are you aligned? Are you reset with the Spirit? Not just trying to reset your behavior, but resetting your entire orientation to where your freedom comes from Christ and your freedom is willingly given for the meaning and the purpose that Christ has for your life. That your, your, your very relationships and community, that instead of saying, I'll belong if I like this place or I belong if I like those people or if those people are like me, instead you say, I belong because those people belong to Jesus. And because I belong to Jesus, I belong to them. And because they belong to Jesus, they belong to me. It was so interesting when I first started uh, pastoring. You know, when you first start out pastoring, the leaders and the denomination give you a church they, that you cannot hurt. That doesn't mean they can't hurt you. But it's a church you cannot, it's a church when you're young, it's a church nobody else wants. And so I remember going to this church, and these were really difficult people. Two or three of them tried to commit suicide. Two or three of them tried to kill me. Uh, I'm kidding about that. It was a tough place. Marriage is falling apart. All kinds of hidden sin. All kinds of issues. All kinds of dis disputes, discussions, all kinds of things. And I said, oh God, would you please just wipe these people off the face of the earth? And he wouldn't do it. And then I started going, well, let me figure out how to make them like me. So I worked really, really hard to make them all like me and acted like I was going to be all of their best friends. You know what happens when you offer to be people's best friend? They take you up on it. <laughs> For long, I had 150 best friends. And I was crying, oh, God, I can't keep up with this. I can't do this. Because I thought, well, my job as a pastor is to make everybody like me and make everybody love me. And as I got, as I began to see the deceit in my heart. And I began to see where there wasn't the freedom, there wasn't clarity of meaning, where there wasn't community connection like I needed. Where I kept saying, I'll be connected if I like them. Or I'll be connected if they like me. 
All of those things began to change. It's so counterintuitive what it is to, in some ways, align yourself with what will cause the flourishing. But here's what happened. Instead of saying, I'm trying to make them love or like me, I realized I didn't love them. And you know, you can't really pastor people you don't love. And in that brokenness and in that embracing my brokenness, I began to confess, Lord, I've tried to use them to fulfill me instead of serving them to fulfill you. And in that moment, a change came over and I began to love the people with an unconditional love. And I began to see, as I came in to preach, I would see their hearts, I would see their needs. And something began to happen. Something was transformed. Because see, friends, if you keep making it about you and people liking you and responding to you, and you don't make it about receiving the fullness of Christ and then distributing the fullness of Christ, you will never flourish because no one else has a reservoir that you can fill from. I hear the music, so I got to talk fast. Are you tracking with me in this? So this is why you can have every confidence that you are meant to flourish. The gospel is in fact so foolish according to our own natural wisdom and so scandalous according to our own consciences and so incredible according to my timid heart that it is a daily battle to believe the full scope of the gospel as I should. There's simply no other way to compete with the forebodings of my conscience, the condemnings of my heart, and the lies of the world and the devil than to overwhelm such things with daily rehearsings of the gospel. See, what's going on in your life is there's a battle that is made up of a thousand little moments, choices you're making between self and service. We fall not when we face the martyr's death, but we fall when we face a traffic jam. It's too easy to imagine ourselves as strong Christians who would stand firm in the face of persecution while every day we let sinful desires control us. We imagine ourselves winning the great battles when all the time we're losing the daily littles. One hymn writer, theologian Horatius Boner said it this way, the Christian life is a great thing, one of the greatest things on earth, made up of daily littles. It is yet in itself not a little thing, but insofar as it is truly lived, is noble throughout. A part of that great whole in which and by which it is to be made known to the principalities and powers in heavenly places, the manifold wisdom of God. Now here's what all this means. and I'll, I'm going to finish with this, but I need you to hear me. Every little, what this means is that every little victory that you have is a death blow to the kingdom of darkness. Now see, I know this isn't your perspective. You're looking for the big victories. You're looking at the big failures. But what, what Bonar is saying is if you are in grace, if you are in Christ, if you're on the narrow road, every little victory, every time you don't lose your temper, every time you give yourself fully to the Holy Spirit, you are dealing a death blow to the kingdom of darkness. And every time you fail, friends, listen to me. Every time even the biggest failures are covered by the blood of Jesus. There is no losing. See, if it's all of grace, then it's not your performance. What you and I want, we want big breakthroughs. You just need little ones. I see people sometimes, they went years without drinking, and then they take a drink, and they say, I blew it. I ruined it all. And they say, I might as well go ahead and get drunk. You understand? That's the strategy of the enemy. To make you think by one failure, you've blown it. Instead of recognizing even the biggest failures are atoned for by the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus cleanses us of all unrighteousness. All. You have a safety net like never before. You're not failures, but you're failing to see that you flourish with every little 
victory. Stand with me as we close. The reason why this is a victory and the reason why the kingdom of darkness gets a blow every time you win a little battle is because when you win a little battle, you are stepping into the rightful position you have as children of God. And the enemy hates that. You see, the beautiful part about the prodigal son is that when he returned to his father, he didn't just get to come home, but he was clothed with a robe and he was given a ring and he had shoes on his feet and food to eat and he was celebrated because that's who he truly was as a son and that's who you truly are as sons and daughters of God. So when you have little battles, you are stepping into the alignment of who you were created to be. Those little victories align you with who you were made to be. Don't take off the robe. Don't take off the ring. Don't kick off the shoes. You are a child of God. So I bless you to receive that identity. To receive your identity as celebrated children of God. That when you stumble and fall around, don't take off what he's clothed you in. Don't take off your identity. Remind yourself and feed the nature of the spirit within you, the spirit of God within you. Remind yourself who you belong to, what you are clothed in, how God sees you. Because you are pushing back the kingdom of darkness as you step into the assignment and the alignment that God has for you. You are bringing more of his presence to this place when you step in the identity that he has for you. So I bless you to receive that this morning. Father, we give you all the glory and all the honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.